Dining with Cannibals Written and performed by Michael J. Grady Chapter 1 The Bottom Feeder The physics lesson was approaching light speed. The clock on the classroom wall had stopped. And I was relatively lost. I looked down at my notes, staring into the complex mathematical proofs. Greek letters, exponents, and fractions, bundled up in brackets, which supposedly theorized about a causal link between perception and reality. But it was all over my head. It had been a whirlwind from the beginning. An expanding mass of abstract theories, multiplying at the maniacal rate of a professor who couldn't wait to leave, accelerating beyond my limitations at a rate which doubled every five minutes. I wrote down double-slit experiment. I wrote down Schrodinger equation. I wrote down multiple worlds theory. You could almost hear the Doppler effect of each of these terms as they whizzed by. And I couldn't write one fast enough before the instructor was on to the next one. The name of the course was simply Quantum Mechanics. When I signed up, the nakedness of the title gave me an uneasy feeling. It was all matter and no art. The stark gesture of a man with better things to do. We were reduced to academic whores, leaping into text without being wooed or inspired. On the first day of class, the instructor entered the room mumbling, Open your books. In academics, it doesn't get much more let's fuck than that. The instructor, who I will refer to as Niles Boring, blew through the math impatiently. His volume was almost inaudible, his voice monotonal, and it seemed that he had as much trouble paying attention to us as we did him. No pauses, no breaks. His lectures rushed by us without questions. If I raised my hand, I'm not sure he would have seen it. He wore large, thick glasses which reduced the size of his eyes to needlepoints, which seemed to disappear whenever he blinked. In spite of wanting to understand Boring's lecture on Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, my notes devolved into doodles and my mind drifted, drifted, drifted. Okay. Heisenberg's theory is written as delta x times delta p is greater than or equal to h bar over 2. Do you know what that means? Yeah. What? It means you shouldn't write it. It's simple. Why, a child of 10 would understand it. I only understood half of it. How old are you? Five. Now listen. Delta x refers to the uncertainty of position. Well, delta p refers to the uncertainty of momentum. Well, I don't kiss and tell. Will you get your mind out of the gutter and focus? Okay, okay. Now, I'm just asking you to focus on two things. Your delta X and your delta P. My delta who and my delta what? Let's just call it X and P. Is that easier? Well, it's shorter. Fine. Now, what does your X stand for? How would I know? I'm not seeing her anymore. You're not seeing who? My X. Your X isn't a woman. She isn't? No. You could have fooled me. Wait, your X's position. What about my X's position? Do you know your X's position? On what? Do you know where your ex is? I just told you. I don't see her anymore. You don't know your ex's position? No. Then you're paying too much attention to your P. How would you know? How would I know? Why, everyone in physics class knows that. Has she been telling everybody? Who? My ex. Now, we're not talking about a woman here. Apparently. Now, do you know what your ex is? I do now. Now, if you focus too much on your ex, what happens? I don't know. You lose your P. Stop right there. What? I lose my P? Yes. 
Well, I guess two can play at that game. Don't get worked up. How can I not get worked up? It's just a little problem. A little problem? Yes. I just lost my pee. It's either your pee or your ex. You can't have both. Well, I'll take my pee, thank you very much. Do you even know what your pee is? I should hope so. Your pee is your momentum. It's more than a momentum to me. Then stop concentrating on your ex. You were the one who had me concentrate on my ex. And if I hadn't concentrated on my ex, I wouldn't have lost my pee. Have you been listening to me? Sure I have. Doesn't seem like it. Well, I have. What have I been saying? If I concentrate on my ex's position, I lose my pee or my momentum. If I concentrate on my pee or my momentum, I lose my ex's position. I can't have both. Either one or the other. Apparently, everyone in physics class knows that. And now I do too. Well, now you have it. Now I have what? Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. I do? You do? Well, if I ever see my ex again, I'm going to give her a piece of my mind. Be careful. Why? Because she's a man. Why am I always the last to know? My mind had wandered off for half the class. The other students stood up around me and shuffled to the door. Boring had left the classroom. I was puzzled by the notes that I had taken and decided to go to the library to decipher them. There was a partial differential equation that seemed to call out to me. It was like reading a poem and thinking you understood it until the moment you were asked to explain it. Its meaning was just beyond my reach and I had misunderstood it every way it could be misunderstood. Except one. And it was that final misunderstanding that did it. The misperception that changed my reality and pitched me into the universe next door. I sat in the library staring out into space when the world went out of focus and the thought fell upon me. At the moment I was to write it down, I dropped my pen. And when I knelt down to pick it up, I fell through a crack. I opened my eyes, and above me I saw what I least expected to see. The floor. It was not the same floor. Not the floor that I was kneeling on moments before that was beneath me. This one was not. I laid still with one hand on the smoke detector and the other on the skylight. And though it would be easier for me to say that I rose to my feet and stood up, it would not have been accurate. In fact... I lowered myself to my feet and stood down. I felt a surge of nausea run down my body from my stomach to my head, and I literally rolled up into a ball, as high as I could. As I shut my eyes, I heard a grunting and squeaking above me. The squeaking was that of a bed, and the grunting came from a portly man and an elderly woman, engaged in casual conversation and indifferent bonking. They say it might rain, said the portly man thrusting. They always do, said the elderly woman panting. I like your hat. Thank you, said the elderly woman wheezing. I just bought it. It's very flattering, said the portly man with a grunt. Are you trying to flirt with me, said the elderly woman, with a coo followed by a less voluntary sigh. I was petrified, afflicted with a curiosity which disturbed me. I couldn't help it. It was like a cross between my dinner with Andre and granny porn. They have double coupons at the supermarket. Do they? It was gruesome and tedious. It carried out with the unsettling precision of a hand-cranked automaton. As they discussed the bus route from the diaper museum to the garnish shop, I decided to make my escape. I stood down and tiptoed across the ceiling toward the door. Look! 
What? Look! What? There's a man on the ceiling, said the elderly woman. Now? asked the man. The portly man stopped and looked over his shoulder at me, stood up, and put his hands on his hips without bothering to pull up his pants. Where have you been? he said. Have you seen him before? she asked. No, said the portly man. But it's about time. His finger shot up at me. What have you to say for yourself? I'm sorry, I said, looking up at my feet. Well, you should be sorry. Were you expecting someone? asked the woman, getting dressed. No, if I was, I would have started waiting. They sat on the bed, looking up at me. I'm sorry, I repeated. You're sorry? Isn't that rich? Everybody is sorry. Why are you sorry? I was more stuck for an answer than I was on the ceiling. I could only repeat that I was sorry. Sorry for what? he said. I, I'm sorry I in- intruded. So you're an intruder, said the man. I, I must be, I surrendered. Well, why didn't you say so, said the man, smiling. I'm stuck up here, I said. Apparently. Uh, on the ceiling, I said. Oh, the ceiling. I think he's trying to change the subject, she said to the man. But it, isn't it strange, I said. Well, besides the intruding, I think it's the only thing you did right, said the old man. The portly man and elderly woman paused. The pause encountered another pause, bought it a drink, and became pregnant. I had to say something. I'm sorry I interrupted you. And you're, uh... Ah, what? said the portly man. Wife, I assumed. Wife? repeated the man. Did he just call me a wife? cried the woman in horror. I think he did. I've been debased. I didn't mean... It's too late now. The damage is done, said the woman. But the two of you were just... Uh, there's the R again, said the man. I heard it too, said the woman. I mean, you and she were... together, I suggested. Her? said the man. Yes, I said. I've never met this woman before in my life, he said. But the two of you were just having sex, I said. Oh, sex, said the man. Were you having sex? He inquired. Technically, she conceded. If you want to split hairs, said the portly man. But we never made introductions. Oh, neither have we, I said, holding out my hand. The portly man then held up his hand and turned his head away from me. Do you think I'm the kind of person who introduces himself to people I don't know? I was just going to say my name, I said. Don't be disgusting, said the woman. You ignorant cretin! What did we do to you that you should abuse us? The man asked as he helped the woman to get dressed. Are you okay? It's the youth these days, said the woman. In my day, said the portly man, you had to go through a lot of baby oil and paper towels before anyone considered exchanging names and pleasantries. I can't abide by this moral decay, said the woman. Kids today, they have no compunctions about shouting out obscenities in the streets, like, Hey, Johnny, is that a new jacket? Has it come so far, said the woman. Yes, said the man. And in broad daylight. I'm so sorry, I said. I'll I'll go. Please do. Can you help me down? Why would I want to do that? Asked the man. If I can get down, I can leave, I said. I don't understand. What are you driving at, young man? Well, do you want a trespasser in your home? I asked. Well, that's a complicated question. I'd want time to consider that. Go over the pros and cons. But you have one in your home right now. I don't believe so. I'm not expecting one either. But aren't I an intruder? He did say so, if he can be trusted. Well, you don't want me in your house, do you? Well, you're not in my house. Nor mine. I mean, how can it be? He's here. Wait, you mean this isn't your home? Oh, heavens no, said the woman. Why would you think that, said the man. 
Well, the two of you were just, uh... Ah, uh, what? asked the man. You know, uh, talking about the weather. <gasps> we did no such thing! Are you suggesting that we were being... Cordial? asked the man. I meant having sex. And so what if we were? It's a nice day. Well, you see, I thought it must be your home, I said. It's not my home, said the woman. Nor mine, said the man. I can't follow him, said the woman to the man. Don't ask me for help. Well, if it isn't your home or yours, I began. Whose is it? Well, that should be obvious, said the woman. Plain as the fuzz on your navel, said the man. Just think, prodded the woman with an exhale. <sighs> they looked at me strenuously. Mine? I said. Well, there you go, said the portly man, putting on his pants. I must be dreaming, said the elderly woman, unbunching her pantyhose. Me too, said the portly man. I'm the one on the ceiling, I said. Oh, I'll have to consult with my doctor on that one, said the elderly woman. Well, it could be my dream, I said. Well, it was my idea, said the elderly woman. And then it was my idea, said the man. We must be taking turns, she said. I'm glad we settled that, said the portly man. I'd better go, he started for the door. Are you coming, Barbara? Suddenly the portly man froze. Stanley, said the woman, shocked. How could you? It, it isn't what it looks like, said the man. I gave her a fake name. So did I, said the elderly woman. Oh, thank heavens, said the portly man, relieved, before blowing the candles on. They both left in haste, slamming the door shut behind them. The slam echoed in the large room. I sat on the ceiling, paralyzed with mental indigestion. The strange couple had left me, but I was still sitting on the ceiling of an upside-down room. What a terrible dream, I told myself. There were no windows, and I could not open the skylight. My only way out was a large and terrifying door. I walked up to it and carefully listened. As disturbed as I was by the unfamiliar room, I was petrified of the unknown one on the other side. I leaned against the wall, got up on my toes, and reached for the knob. The door opened with a swing, carrying my body to its abrupt stopping point. The wall. I jumped down to the ceiling and stared out the door for a moment, and then stepped over the door frame into the dark corridor. I took short, slow steps across the ceiling, above the stairs leading to the front door of the house. The foyer ceiling was low, and the front door's knob was easier to reach. I turned it. The door crept open, and my blood ran cold. There was no ceiling left to walk on, only an endless gorge of atmosphere, an abyss of white and blue. I removed a shoe and threw it out the door, and it fell skyward and disappeared. Looking to the floor above me, an umbrella leaned against the wall. I picked it down and tossed it outside, and it landed on the ground above. At least there was a logic to my predicament. Inside the house, I changed my clothes, put on shoes, filled my pockets with heavy objects, fastening whatever I could to my body, and as I did, my body hovered and then settled on the ground above me. After filling two suitcases with dishes, books, and tools, I was heavy enough to walk on the ground. Weighed up and upside down, I practiced walking on the floor of the empty helter-skelter house. It took mental effort to adjust to the strange sensations and feedback my brain was inundated with, and it took a lot of physical effort to keep my tension with the ground. One trip, and I was flipped over with my feet kicking at heaven hovering between the floor and the ceiling. I practiced moving from room to room and walking up and down stairs. My first step outside was a test of will, 
And to my terror, math. My instincts betrayed me, relying on the weight of my foot. Since there was no weight to rely upon, the shift in weight flipped my body and my feet were pulled skyward. I pulled up on the handles of my suitcases and with some strain oriented my body to walk on the ground again. I had to experiment with the weight I was carrying. I crouched low and moved the weighted suitcases ahead of me for a few doubtful steps. I kept my eyes on the ground above me, walking at the slow and deliberate speed of a tightrope walker. All my thoughts and instincts were contrary to this world, and I could only shamble conspicuously in a costume made of housewares and duct tape tethered to suitcases with belts and bungee cords. My earliest interactions with the people of this overturned world were also embarrassing and confusing. All of my instincts were wrong, I lacked the knowledge and experience to blend in, and it was easy for me to gather negative attention. It was a lot like high school. Like then, I kept telling myself that it had all been some sort of bad dream. While riding a bus one time, I was surprised to meet a normal person who struck up a conversation with me that I felt like I could follow. Have you ever felt... like you stepped into another world? asked the stranger. Outside the window, I saw a couple of dogs doing missionary. Yes, I said cautiously. Have you? I asked. No, he said. You just seemed that way. Oh, I said. Days went by, and my sense of what was proper crystallized. But my behavior was slow to follow. Logically, all I had to do was exchange propriety for impropriety and reverse the values of cause and effect. Easier said than done. But I had moments when I could almost fit in if I didn't get too ambitious. When someone suddenly blurted, Bless you, I would offer them an amiable sneeze. Then, naturally, they would say, You're welcome. And it followed that I would politely tell them, Thank you. Occasionally, without warning, someone would shout, You're excused. There are two acceptable responses to this. The first was to pretend that it didn't happen. And the other was to smile and fart. Here, farts were a service. A sacrificial act. A solemn occasion. A sudden and often uncomfortable bloating, which transformed rooms from hostile to inviting in a few moments. <sighs> the farter was typically pleased with himself, and they were often showered with conspicuous appreciation. <laughs> On rare occasions, a room would be graced by a philanthropist, an altruistic soul who preferred to remain anonymous. Freshening the room, and then, like a lone ranger, departing before anyone can express their gratitude. Of course, there were cynics who believed that such people did not exist. Though it was sometimes amusing to witness a causal chain moving from disorder to order, as a stranger it was easy to be trapped by it. What was I going to do? I was all alone in a land where everything was reversed without a penny to my name. And after I thought about this, my mind ran a few calculations, and suddenly I realized that in a land turned upside down, with a reverse chain of causality, I was king. Since my wallet was empty, I went shopping. I bought a suit and a tie and a pair of boots, all weighed down to keep me from floating away. And I bought a phone and a watch and a car and a house. And then I learned that owning things was a bad idea, because they created wealth and good credit. And that was a burden that few people wanted to carry. Earlier on, when I got hungry, I stepped into the loaf. 
a ritzy restaurant with good reviews in a prominent part of town. After I had seated myself, a man in another booth stood up in disgust, saying, This tastes like food! The waiter walked up to my table and said, Welcome to the loaf. Can I get you started with something? Do you serve food here? Oh, don't believe that man, said the waiter. He was just making a scene. Ah, good, I said. May I see the menu? So soon? Well, I'd like to order. Oh, now you have plenty of time for that. Well, I'm hungry. Your order is being plated as we speak. But I haven't ordered. Well, you do want it fresh, don't you? Well, yes, but... Here you are, sir, said the waiter as he placed the plate in front of me. I looked at the generous portion of the house special on my plate. It was not what I expected, but its nature could not have been more obvious if it were served at the bottom of a sneaker and still steaming. Is there something wrong? asked the waiter. Is this 100%? But it's not... Not what, sir? Food. Shh, said the waiter whispering. Please, sir, don't say that. Food? Shh, said the waiter. People are eating. I looked around to the people sitting at other tables, enthusiastically slopping up their orders and turning to one another with nods and smiles. But they're not eating food. Of course they're not eating... The waiter looked around and then leaned in. Of course they're not eating that. What kind of place do you think this is? Well, I, I don't like this. What's wrong with it? It's fresh. The waiter waved to the chef who stood in the doorway to the kitchen, proudly tightening his belt. I looked back at the waiter, who smiled and paused expectantly. After a few more moments of paralysis, I threw down my napkin and walked out of the restaurant without paying the bill. The waiter thanked me for my generosity. Across the street there was Le Chaux's Brune, but they served the same dish, and it was the same crap. My gorge rose and my stomach turned. Desperately, I ran to the market to try my luck there. From one aisle to the next row after row in packages, under plastic and sold by the pound at the deli. It was all the same old stuff. I grew hungry and tired and weak. I found no other choices and lost faith that other choices could be found. I started to bargain with myself. Maybe, maybe it would be better than I imagined. Or if I could forget what it was, or where it came from. If I could give it the same reprieve I gave to Twinkies and hot dogs and nitrates and sorbates and MSG and gluten. I walked into another restaurant, and this time I entered without hope. I was determined to eat what I was served, and I knew what I would be served. I was resolute. Determined to face it head on, the waiter approached me. Would you like to see the menu? No thanks, I said. Just give me the number two. The waiter smiled and said, Right away, sir, before running into the kitchen. I waited nervously at my seat, watching the door flap back and forth. As waiters went in and out with their orders, I continued to coach myself, choking down my revulsion and taming my gag reflex as the smell of the other orders hit my nostrils. For a moment, I just fantasized that it was seafood. But my waiter came back with my order. And when I saw the plate, I was slammed back to reality. It was just what I had come to expect. 
this time with an elegant garnish of parsley. The waiter bragged that he knew the family that had produced it. He noted the texture and the aroma and how pleasingly it was prepared. I laid the napkin on my lap and lifted my fork. I submerged my fork and stirred it about for a moment. Then I picked out a few kernels of corn and stared at them. Is something wrong? asked the waiter. No, I said, putting my fork down. I guess I'm just not hungry enough. Would you like me to put it in a doggy bag? said the waiter. Dear God, no, I said, throwing down my napkin. And this time I had a tip for him. Thank you. My pleasure. I walked out feeling so ill and weak. I felt as if I couldn't make it much longer. As I walked along the main street, I started to weep. I could not stop thinking of food, and as I did, I sensed I was starting to hallucinate. The air to me seemed thick with the smell of food. There was a strong, damp feeling that I was surrounded by it. I followed the moist scent to a manhole cover, and as I got closer, I realized that it was brimming over with tomato sauce and smelled like lasagna. I waited patiently until dark, and I came back to the manhole, and I pried it open and flashed my light into the hole and was pleased to find streaming through tunnels and pipes, floating on pools of soup and sauces and creams, was food, abundant heaps of food. As I jumped off the ladder leading into the sewer, I stepped on a piece of birthday cake. I was overwhelmed by the powerful and imposing sense of fruit and vegetables, pasta, meat and bread. I was inside a horn of plenty, surrounded by a feast. It was on the ground and floating on water. "'smeared against walls, on plates, in boxes, and on the ceiling. "'Everything that one could imagine. "'Slightly cold and stale, but edible. "'With a pot, a can of sterno, and a few spices, "'I could make whatever I wanted. "'Roasts and fillets, puddings and sauces, "'meats and cheeses, salads and desserts. "'All of the ingredients I needed were all around me, "'flowing in every direction toward the main drainage pipe "'where I was gathering and cooking.' I tried not to think of what it was or where it came from. At least it was better than what they were serving above ground. I remained in the sewer for days, gorging on the cornucopia which surrounded me. I ate until I was too full to move, too tired to eat, and discovered that as filled as I was with all that I was eating, that my body was becoming heavy. Soon I grew tired of consuming all the leftovers that I had been eating in the sewers underground. Though freshness had been maligned by recent events, now it was freshness that I craved. I knew what it meant. I knew it would not be easy. I had to be vigilant. I started by stalking homeless people. Not well at first. They didn't know what I was up to, but I could tell they were suspicious. If my meal was to be fresh, I couldn't just strike and run. I had to stalk and wait. And my prey had to relax. He had to feel safe. And then one night, after tracking him for several hours, one homeless man casually snuck behind a restaurant and squatted by a dumpster. When he departed, I moved in, and I discovered that he had left behind a freshly baked lemon meringue pie. I didn't care that it had been laid out on the concrete. I took out my plastic bags and wrapped it carefully, taking it back to my de facto home where I crouched in a corner and ate, sobbing.
I realized what I had become. I was a bottom feeder. As I ate the last of the pie, I pretended that I was back home, where food was picked from trees by nine-year-old children in the third world, and meat came from animals raised in cages. I longed to be at the top of the food chain again, and I wondered how I could get home. Days passed, so many days. The most disturbing thing is you can get used to anything. The world can turn upside down and inside out, and one day it just seems normal. And it was all normal. Even the feeling that I was all alone. One day, while I was doodling on a piece of paper, I was settled down enough to start wondering if I could write down that equation from memory. And if I could do that, maybe I could find the thought that brought me here. It was worth a try. I didn't find it right away. It took many days, and I filled many pages and wrote everything I could think of several times. But one day I looked up, and there it was. I became excited when I saw it. It was the crack, just like the one I saw in the library when my pen ran under the table. I walked toward it, and suddenly I knew where I was. I looked around, and it felt as if I was upside down all over again. I stumbled down the street to my home and walked up the path that led to my front door. I didn't have my key, so I rang the bell. A man came to the door. He was wearing pajama bottoms and slippers. Hello, he said. Sorry, I told him. This looks just like my place. And when I had turned, I saw my wife walking up the path. Matt! she shouted. Where have you been? Who is he? I said. It's been a year, Matt. A year? My wife looked at me. What happened to you? What could I tell her? I would have given anything for a more plausible explanation. Honey, I... I was abducted by aliens. You have just heard Dining with Cannibals, Chapter 1, The Bottom Feeder, written and performed by Michael J. Grady, released on International Towel Day 2021 to celebrate the life and work of Douglas Adams. Open source music in this episode included Whore Whore and Blood Eagle, each by Alexander Nakarada, as well as Evil Coming by Kevin McLeod, all three of which are available at freepd.com. That is freepd.com. This episode also included Concerto Grosso in G Minor, Opus 6, Number 8 by Vivaldi, conducted by Richard Kapp and performed by the Philharmonia Virtuosi of New York. This will not be the last time Matt Gilling slips into another dimension, nor will it be the strangest world he will walk in. Stay tuned for more 11-dimensional slapstick, sooner or later, never and always. Always.